0: Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. So as you're getting there, I want to uh, welcome you again to our gathering. This is week four as we're going through the book of Genesis. And we've been looking at what is God's design. So much of our theology of Christian orthodoxy finds its roots at the very beginning, at the very beginning of all things. And so this, uh, today we're going to be looking at marriage. And so if you came here and you're like, oh, great. The one week I wish I could have skipped. I just want you to know wherever you're coming from, if you're single, if you're newly single, if you're longing to be married or wishing you weren't, wherever you're coming from, I want you to know this, that God's word can bring both confrontation and comfort. It brings both of those things. And so my hope for us is that we'd come to it with humble hearts and say, Lord, what do you have to say to us? How might we receive it with humility? And so would you pray that with me as we start reading and get to work in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18? That's where we're going to be. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. He slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now that you will fill our minds and our hearts with a vision of marriage. That will resemble your heart when you first gave Eve to Adam. And I pray that every single person in this room would be able to receive all these words from your word about marriage. That every married couple and every individual single person who longs to be married and wish, or those that wish that they weren't, that you would comfort them with the gospel and confront all that doesn't resemble your design. I pray that all of this, you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' wonderful, beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen. And One of the joys of being a pastor is that I get to participate in weddings. Okay, I don't loathe weddings. A lot of people probably do. Um, but my favorite part of a wedding has actually become this other part. It's not when the, the husband gets to see the wife uh, for the, fir- the, the bride for the first time or when they say, I do, or when you pronounce them in marriage. It's this moment that's all in the hands of a DJ, okay? <laughs> okay, just stick with me for a second, okay? Usually after the first dance, there's another dance where they say, everybody married, go ahead and get on the floor, okay? And everybody comes into the floor. Maybe you've been to a wedding where this happened. And they basically start eliminating people by the age of their marriage. And eventually they're like, okay, everybody that's been married for less than two years, go ahead and get off the dance floor. Everybody's been less than five years, go ahead and get off the dance floor. Everybody less than ten years, get off the dance floor. And eventually you've got that one couple that's been married longer than anyone else. And they're sitting there dancing. Maybe they're smiling, maybe they're not. But in several, several occasions... More than any other moment in a wedding, this moment brings a tear to my eye. Because you know, if they're still married, that they've been through some stuff, right? That they've been through a lot. That they outlived everyone else in their marriage. And you know this because you know that all of the moments like right at the wedding or leading up to the wedding, it could be just an immature manifestation of love. It could just be lust or infatuation or finding someone else interesting. It could be that. But for this group of people, whoever it is, it's like outlasted the 20 year, 30 year, 40 year mark. You're looking at them going, okay. Marriage should be held in honor by all, okay? That's a verse from Hebrews chapter 13. Marriage should be held in honor by all. And for the person that stuck it out there at the end, you're looking at them going, okay, slow clap for them, right? <laughs> tear, tear to my eye. And I know this because I have been in marriage too. I get to be married every day. I get that. And, and sometimes with marriage, you realize that it's much, harder, it's much harder to stay married than to get married. It's just a reality. The only people who don't know that are the people that are not yet married. And I think, I've told people this several times, that, that marriage can be kind of equated to the age of a child, right? When you're two years old in marriage, you're like, okay, you can expect a two-year-old to do some th- dumb things, and they trip over themselves, and then when they're 12, you're like hoping they can brush their teeth. When they're like 15 to 18, you're hoping they can drive themselves places, and, but even a 20-year-old marriage, sometimes you're looking at them going, you can still do stupid things when you're 20, right? Don't you wish you could go back to your 20-year-old self and like tell yourself some advice, The same thing is true. anniversaries, like any birthday, we've got to acknowledge and go, okay, this is a good thing. It should be celebrated. Because why should it be held in honor? Because marriage has this great potential to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fully committed love of God, even when we're disobedient and negligent and running away from Him, that He continually pursues us. And so, if... Uh, we have that as a vision for what God has for marriage, this opportunity to declare and demonstrate what he's like. Sometimes our disappointment and disillusionment can fall in its right place. Everybody that's been married, you're going to experience disappointment, okay? All of those that are moving towards marriage, you need to understand that. And here's part of the reason why. Because so much of our joy, in marriage, or disappointment in marriage is based on our own subjective expectations for what it should be like, okay? All of us bring these hopes, dreams, fears, expectations into marriage. Everyone has them. You just don't know what they are until you don't get them, okay? You, you don't realize what you expected until you're disappointed. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought you were gonna be like this. I thought this was gonna be like this. I thought this was gonna happen. And then it doesn't. And so the only, the only person... That re- it's not the only person that matters, but the ultimate person that matters is this. What, did God, what does God dream when he created marriage in the first place? Because if you're aiming at your spouse's expectations, it's going to be a moving target. If you're aiming at your expectations, moving target. But God has clearly given us a design. And so today, I just want to present to you, these are uh, statistics uh, that I, I gathered from The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller's book. Marriage is in a state of crisis, okay? Like, it's not just those that are, like, a little bit unhappy. Marriage culturally is kind of in decline. Since 1960, the divorce rate has nearly doubled. In 1970, almost 90 to 89 89 percent of births were born to married parents. In 2008, only 50 percent of births were born to married people. Meanwhile, cohabitation or living together outside of marriage has grown exponentially. In 1960, virtually no one did that. Like, it just didn't happen. Or people didn't talk about it if they did it, right? But, then, but now, uh, about 50% of marriages, or, uh, hang on, sorry, 60% of women in their late 30s will have lived with a partner by the time they reach that age. It's just different. Time is changing. Almost 50% of marriage ends in divorce. Uh, And and most people assume that the other 50%, like some portion of them, uh, are miserable, right? Like that's like the assumption. Uh, As Chris Rock put it, you can either have uh, single and alone and be miserable or be married and be bored. That's the two options that are presented by most of the world. So what does God have to say about marriage? What does it have to do with our expectations or what his design is? And I just want to give you this as a simple theme for today, is this. Marriage is a gift. It's designed by God to glorify God, yes, and for our joy. He's giving it to us for our flourishing. It's the oldest institution that's ever been created. Before the church ever existed, before the government existed, God gave this specific gift. So today, the biggest question isn't, How do we need to define marriage? But how does God define it? What does it look like in the very first place? We desperately need this, not just for our personal relationships, but society. We need this culturally to have a vision of marriage that isn't just moving based on the times or moving based on what we wish it would be or moving based on the latest rom-com where everyone has interesting apartments and interesting jobs. And in the end, it all works out. Marriage is supposed to be a gift from God for his purposes and for our joy. So I want to go through three things today from this passage. Um, First, the gift of what it is, God's vision for it, and then some ways that we might enjoy it. Now, if you're single, you might be just wondering, okay, what does this matter (laughs) How does this matter for me? If I have no intention of being married or you plan on being celibate for the rest of your life, if you're asking the question, how does this matter, I just want to give you this uh, before we launch into this gift of marriage. For us as a body, most of your brothers and sisters and siblings are going to experience marriage. Okay? If you do have kids, your kids are going to experience marriage. As a, as a church culture, we need to understand what is God's definition of this gift. How does he define it so that we can be good siblings to one another in the context of it? Okay, so first, the gift of marriage. I want to give you the context first for this gift is God gives Adam a task a task for which is going to be huge, okay? We've learned in chapter 1 of Genesis that he blessed them and tells them to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and to subdue it. Lots of different parts of that, but it's going to require that he see that he cannot fulfill this command by himself. And so God gives him this command. I want you to till the earth, subdue it, bring fill the earth. I want you to multiply. And he brings in the context of this task an observation, and we get to hear God's evaluation of what's happening, okay? There's a few moments in Scripture where you just pause and say, I'm getting to know the thoughts of the living God. And so he looks at Adam and he says, there's something that's not good about this, okay? In the mind of God, he looks at Adam and he said, I've given him a task, but this man, by himself, perfect to garden, rich resources, everything he needs, it's still not good for him to be by himself. The first time that God looks at creation and says, this isn't right, is looking at a man by himself. And every mom in the room said, yes and amen. That's true. A man by himself is not as good as as what he could be. There's something incomplete, and he wants us to see his heart in this. He's allowing us to see what it looks like for this man to be alone. That doesn't mean that singleness is not a gift too. We learn later in the New Testament that singleness itself is a gift. He's saying, hey, there's a task that I've given to this man that he'll be unable to complete unless I give him something else. So in verse 18, it says, the Lord says, it's not good to the man to be alone. And then in his heart, and his evaluation, he says, I have a vision of something better. I'll make him a helper fit for him. There's something better than man being alone. It was... To give him a suitable helper. So first we see God's intention, his evaluation, his intention that he's going to make a suitable helper that's fit for Adam. So, he brings forth life. He puts Adam in the garden. He gives him a task and he says, in order to fulfill this task, you're going to need someone else. He's brought all kinds of living beings into existence and he begins to parade them in front of Adam. Almost as if to show him so that Adam could see what God had seen. He's naming the zebras, naming the giraffes, and somehow he sees that these things are kind of like each other, but they're not like me. And the light bulb goes off in his head, and he's like, okay, there's not a suitable helper for me. What does a suitable helper look like? Now, I just want to point out that that God's word here is suitable, not compatible, right? So many times we get fixated on compatible, and it gives us a reason to be together or a reason not to be together, compatibility is not all it's cracked up to be, okay? Because if you live with someone long enough, they'll become incompatible to you, okay? You know why? Because marriage changes you. It does. When you say my, mar- my spouse has changed, that's because marriage changes you. It does, Duke University ethics professor Stanley Hauerwas made this point in this way. He said, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family were primary institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we're going to find the right person. Some of you have been looking close enough to see that that person doesn't exist. Next next slide. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, Means that we're not the same person after we've entered it. So the primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger whom you find yourself married to. Everyone who's married said, Yeah, that's an accurate assessment. <laughs> that's kind of what happens. It, now, here's the other piece of that. It doesn't mean that there's some ways that we should look at people and go, That's not a good match. <laughs> okay? Now, you all know people that you're like, That's not gonna work out. That's not good. And that, and, I'm not saying that you should go, like, pursue martyrdom for the sake of some, like, you know, demonstration of God's love for the church. No, God wants you to enjoy your spouse, but he also doesn't want you to be under this false assumption that somehow the person that you married is just always going to play by the same rules that they played with during dating. Okay, when you close the exit door, it changes who we are. It's just true. It changes us. So there could be people more suitable to you, but God looks at Adam and he brings a helper suitable to him. And what does she look like? He's given a wife. This links back to chapter one, verse 28, male and female. He created them and then he brings her to him as obviously like him and different. So she's distinct In that the commission that God gave humanity was given to man first, but then the woman comes as a helper that's suitable. It's saying, hey, it's going to be necessary that both of you come together. also to multiply and fill the earth. Her gender mattered. There was a dis- diminished view of a helper, and there still is. I don't know if you've ever been out with, you know, remember being a kid. You go out with your grandparents somewhere, and they're like, oh, look, your helpers with, you, you got a helper. And you realize that they're just, like, playing some game, that you're not really a helper. And in so many ways, like, we see this role of helper as somehow diminished from the glory that it is. Our culture would say, hey, it's not a good thing to be considered a helper to someone else because we all want to be individuals and be the boss. But the reality is God himself refers to himself as helper. And then he puts that distinction on this woman that he brings to man. He says, I'm giving you a gift in this. And it's going to be necessary that both of you play your roles in order to accomplish the mission that I've given you. So helper, we have this this potentially glorious view of what God gives to the man and woman. It's not belittling in the way that that someone said, hey, look, you've got a helper. It's not belittling in that way. It's an honor. So, may we know God as helper and then be associated with those traits. And also, a woman is created. She's given to him both for multiplication and procreation, for subduing and uh, domesticating the world. And any of you know, like if you know me and my spouse, you know that it's absolutely necessary that there's a woman next to me who's helping domesticate my life. There's a need for that. There's a need for order that only she can see, that she brings to me as a good helper. She's also a female that's the only suitable helper who's created in this vision. It's not a son, a brother, but a wife. He gives this wife, suitable as she is, and uniquely engendered, different. And the scripture describes this with no qualms. Like, I understand that this can be taken as hate language right now, that there are differences between men and women. But I feel no need to apologize for scripture. I just want to paint it as a beautiful picture that he does. That God would give us genders that are different. Varied degrees of differences, yes. Women's bodies, though, are different. We need their unique perspective. The Bible describes them as a weaker vessel. And before you get offended by this, how could we possibly know and consider the oppressed and those that are neglected and unseen in our society without someone saying, hey, I know what it feels like to, to feel the risk of being overpowered by someone, and we bring that unique gift in the context of marriage and in the church. Female, there's only one suitable helper. Gender comes with specialities, specialties that only you can bring. In his book, Engendered, Sam Andravis, sorry, says it this way, gender comes with specialities. Specialities are things that we all might do sometimes, but the specialists focus on them especially doing them. We may do many things for each other that are the same, but the gender magic happens when we lean into the asymmetries. Just as physically both males and females need both androgen and estrogen hormones, it is the relative amounts that differ in the sexes. So the gender distinctives are things that both men and women may be able to do and do do. But when done as specialties to one another, they propel relationships. God gives him as a woman to the man. And if we diminish this reality, there's great risk involved. If you read from chapter 1 and you see this this complementary way that God's creating the world, what does he start with? The heavens and then the earth. The land and the sea. The creeping things and things that fly. He's giving these two things together so that they could work together to demonstrate His glory. N.T. Wright says it this way. It's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. The last scene in the Bible is the new heaven and the new earth and the marriage of Christ to His church. It's not just one or two verses. It's the entire narrative which works with this complementary so that a male plus female marriage is a signpost... Or a signal about the goodness of the original creation and God's intention for the eventual way new heavens and new earth. So in one one regard, we're looking at this saying, hey, Every way that we complement one another, that we stand in the gap of each other's weaknesses and strengths, this is pointing us to the day when God makes all things new, and there'll be a new heavens and new earth, and we'll feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of these things, God is giving us the potential to demonstrate and to declare his glory in the ways that we're different. So God's evaluation, He looks at Him and said, This isn't good. He says, Here's an idea. I'm going to make a suitable helper for him. And he gives them a gift of marriage and he brings Eve to Adam, a female, a vision. And he looks at her and says, At last. Look at this in chapter 2, verse 23. The man says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's like me and distinct from me. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. It's received as a gift. God gives her to the man. This, at last, is almost like a song. At last, this thing is like me. It's different. She's distinct from me, but she looks like me. And together, they fulfill this first commission. So, I just want to say, this first, I want to make this one observation, that God giving her to him, Initially, This is what I want you to walk away with. There's lots of things that I've said, but this. He gave her as a gift, one to be received with gratitude. And so what, how should we understand marriage? We first have to see it as a gift. Second point is this. He goes on to say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. He gives us in this verse a vision of what marriage should be. Okay? So, the second point I want to go through is what is God's vision of marriage? How does he describe it, define it? What does it look like? Let's try to answer that question. One of the reasons I know that this is about marriage is that every other place that it's used in the New Testament is about marriage, okay? Jesus quotes it a couple times. Paul quotes it a couple times. And it's always about marriage. So, a few things from that verse. You can put the verse back up there. God's vision. One, the priority of the marriage relationship. He's saying, look, is it therefore a man should leave his father and mother? First thing is, this is going to be distinct within the generations and from every familial relationship. Father, mother, the preeminence of marriage over all the other ones says yes, even then, more important than the people who raised you or the people you're going to raise, okay? Both, and I want to I outline both of those. First, married people in this room, okay? Your covenant with your spouse or unmarried people in the room, the people around you that are married, their relationship to their spouse is prioritized in God's word. Your covenant with your spouse goes beyond your relationship with your parents, So when you hit a problem in your marriage, don't call up mom and dad until you call up your spouse, okay? It's prioritized in God's word. There may be some degree in which they are responsible for the problem that you're having with your spouse. So don't call your parent, okay? I'm not saying never, but first attempt reconciliation with your spouse, okay? Second thing, parents that are in this room, as you look at your kids, know this, that they're one day going to be launched from you and their primary relationship will no longer be you. Some of us grieve about this. I mean, others of us look forward to this day. But either way, first thing that we learn about marriage is this, that, that man is going to leave his father and mother. So in the, in the context of the generations, your spouse is ultimate in the context of family. Second thing is, hold fast. This means that singular, monogamy, all Accounts of polygamy is because of hardness of heart in God's Word. So hold fast to his wife. That means that there's going to be durability and union that can't be broken, a relationship that shouldn't be broken. That's what Jesus said. Stability within family leads to stability in a culture. These things are important. He's saying you're going to hold fast to your wife. And then I just, I want to reference this because what do we do with the fact that not all marriages work, Okay. I understand that that's the context of a lot of folks, not just in our culture, but even in this room. And so I want to ask that same question. Should it be for anything? Is there any way that we leave marriage? Okay. Jesus was asked the same question. And the context of Jesus being asked this question is this, okay. During that time, someone could just say divorce, 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 and then they'd be like split up from their spouse. There was no like hurdles at all. They could burn their toast or burn the eggs in the morning and say, okay, I'm done with you. We're walking on. People could just move on from marriage. And so there's religious leaders like, okay, Jesus, please tell us what, how should we think about this? Is it just for any cause that we should have divorce? And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, again, Jesus referencing the passage today, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has therefore joined together, let no man separate. Okay, but they're like, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying would never happen? Then he goes on to say this. They said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Okay, lots of questions could spurn up from this. I want to answer just one, okay? It's this. God said in the beginning, this wasn't so. So in other words, God's intention and vision of marriage was to be more durable than we experience it to be today, okay? There's lots of reasons that people could potentially leave a marriage, okay? And I want to ask you this question if you're like, okay, well, what's the big deal? If you've walked through that, is it not what Jesus said, that it's all because of hardness of heart, either on one part or both parts or a mixture of both? Is it not because there's some degree where, where our hearts just grow to a toxic level of hardness? Right? Isn't there some degree where Jesus' words are just true? They ring true today. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not reasons to leave a marriage. Okay, I want to make that clear. There are reasons. There are reasons in God's Word, even outside of this passage. But what I want you to observe is this. From the beginning, it wasn't so. That wasn't God's design for it. His vision was for marriage to be this durable place where people could know what his love was like, where he's never going to leave, never going to give up. So today, and I'm going to get to this again, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. That's uh, in Psalms, it's in Hebrews. He says that over and over. If you hear God's voice in this, do not harden your heart to his word. So, number one. It's the priority of marriage, number two. The durability of marriage. And then the third thing is sexual union. His third vision was the two would become one flesh. A man and his wife become one flesh. The gift of sexuality was given within the context of a durable, committed covenant of marriage for enjoyment and for procreation. Both parts, okay? Sex was to be enjoyed in this context of heterosexual marriage. It was a gift the biblical sexual ethic, here's what I want you to know. Even though it's unclear in the world, it's not unclear in God's Word. It's not confusing. It's always been celibacy outside of marriage and chastity within marriage. It's always been that. Now I realize I'm like dancing in a minefield here, okay? I understand. But I cannot stand on any other word than God's. He makes it really clear. He says, outside of marriage, be celibate. Within marriage, be completely committed to one another and enjoy it. And and look, if you have a long list of things that you come into the room baggage, God sees you and he loves you. And even when we fall short of his vision, he gives us grace. He's longing to not just reconcile us to himself, but to reconcile us to what his vision is for these things. So to recap, he gives us marriage, and he gives it as a priority to our relationships, human relationships. He gives it to be durable in union and to give us sexual union for enjoyment and procreation. And then how do we hold to this? Because here's the thing. You know as well as I do that there's people who hold to this biblical sexual ethic or the ethic of marriage, and they do it with great condescension. You know what I'm saying? Like they just condescend towards everybody else, like the Pharisees. They're looking around going, what's the matter with you people? Like, all the statistics feel like a judgment on the world. That's not the way, okay? This should be a place where everybody holds their stones and says, oh, wait, I'll let him, without sin, cast the first one. Let's all, like, drop the stones, okay? Because everybody here is sexually marred. Everybody here has some ways in which we bring our own baggage into the room. There's just no way that sin hasn't affected us in this. There's no one who's in marriage who hasn't sinned against your spouse. Okay, there's just no one here. So all of us come into this space going, Okay, so I can't pursue this as a Pharisee. That's not the way. It's also not uh, with the kind of indifference. We also shouldn't pursue a biblical ethic of sexuality with just kind of like, oh, whatever. Just whatever happens, you know. You know the world these days. Like the world isn't given to us to disciple us, okay? There has to be this tension where we're not condescending to the world, but we're holding with Humility, this is what the Bible says, and we're also not going, well, it doesn't matter anymore because the world has kind of just changed. Yes, it's hard, it's complex, it's really complex to hold to God's vision of marriage. Really tough. So, how should we do it? I think the strongest apologetic is that we would enjoy our marriages, that we just receive them as a gift. Okay, so pursuing joy in marriage. And it just so happens that pursuing joy in relationships resembles this too, okay? How can we pursue joy in marriage? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 describes a marriage relationship. There's a New Testament. He's saying, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And he says this, giving thanks always. It's going to be on the screen, I think. Ephesians 5. Nope. Yep. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in our name of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for (laughs) them. Wow, I am really just stepping on all the things today. Let me just walk through this first. It's not like I didn't know that this would be super offensive. Here's what I want you to know. First thing it starts with before this is praise to God. So when Adam received Eve, what was his first response? At last, a suitable helper. So the first posture of our hearts in any relationship is just gratitude. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good. To have a posture of praise Listen, there's a few things that would be joy killers in your relationships, okay? You can, make, you can write this down for, like, your neighbor, okay, or your kids, or your spouse, but it definitely is a joy killer when these things uh, rear their ugly head. The first one is this entitlement. You know what entitlement is? It's, a, it's the expectations that you have that get turned into debt, okay? Any expectation you have that others don't fulfill and it gets turned into debt, that's entitlement. And I promise you, it will kill all the love in every relationship you have. If you look around you and go, well, I was hoping you would do something different. It will kill every bit of the love. It's a joy killer in every relationship. And it is an antithesis to the gospel. What did God do for us? He said, look, God didn't owe you anything and he gave you everything. And then the way that we transport and embody that gospel in our relationships is saying, look, I know it doesn't make sense, but you don't owe me everything, you don't owe me anything. I'm willing to give this to you out of what's been given to me. That's what the gospel looks like in relationship. It looks like gratitude saying, I'm really grateful. I'm sitting in front of you and connecting to you, and I love you. Entitlement will kill, but the opposite of entitlement is just gratitude. When's the last time you said thank you for the thing that always just happens? in your relationship, in your home? Are there things that you just have kind of taken for granted? Just stop for a moment and say, you know what, I'm super grateful for that. <laughs> it's really good. This past week, uh, which happens on a regular basis, my wife just emptied all my drawers and made them look like Marie Kondo, okay? <laughs> she just made them look amazing. And I'm, I'm like, babe, thank you so much. I know this, like, this is just what you do because otherwise our home would be chaos, and I didn't expect it from her. It just was a gift. I mean, it was such a help to me. Now, you may think that it's like she helps in way other ways than that. I just want to ask you this question. What has God ever owed you? And how do you receive his gift of salvation? That should be how we embody our relationships. As if all we have is just an unexpected gift. It's just a gift. Second joy killer, okay? If you're taking notes. The second thing that will kill your joy is this, control. If you try to control, you want things your way, or you want to pursue your own agenda, and every relationship is a test of your cunning so that you can get the relationship to do what you want it to do, okay, it will destroy all joy in your relationships. It will. Not just in marriage. Everywhere else, it will destroy it. And so the question we should be asking is this, Who's actually in charge? And that's what I said from the beginning. God gets to define what marriage is. He gets to define a sexual ethic. He gets to define all those things. And so we're not asking from other people to give us what God has already said. I'm in charge. I'm the Lord. I'm king. And so as we yield to him, we're also able to yield to one another. So the the combat to this is what it says in Ephesians. Mutual submission. Before it says anything about wives and headship and all of that, it says, Everyone submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. So it begins with this. Either you worship God or you don't. If you value God, our disposition in all human relationships is one of yielding and saying, okay, how can I serve you instead of trying to be served? That's what what it looks like to come against this joy killer of control to say, look, I'm submitting out of reverence to Christ, okay? Before we get into the nitty-gritty of genders and all of those things, it first says this, everyone, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. That's where it begins. The third joy killer is this, selfishness. It's that moment where you see that the only problem in your relationships are other people. You you ever been in a place where you're like, look, I had the same problem with this person and this person and this person, and you realize, like, I'm the one who brings all this problem to the relationship. You ever been there? Look, selfishness is perceiving a problem just from your vantage point, okay? And only being able to see it as how you see it. It's self-absorption and just saying like, hey, I thought you were an actor in my play (laughs) instead of like this being about someone else. That's just a temptation we all have, right? We all think the story is about us because we're in every scene. And we just think that other actors come in and out of our scenes, like you're you're a supporting actor in my play, right? And marriage will be destroyed if we see it that way. God gives us this gift to say, "Oh, this story's about you," and we both get to be actors in the play. That's about you. It's about your glory. And one day, the marriage that's coming, and we just get to be signposts, as I said earlier. So. Tim Keller says it this way. What's the remedy? If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. So how do we remedy this? It's mutual love, love that looks like the love that we've received from Christ. This is our framework for love. How do we define it? It's not who does the chores. It's not who submits to who. It's how Christ has loved us when there was no cause. He just said, you're mine. I love you. You're my child. I've made you for myself. And so how do we do this? Yes, in marriage, it's really, really hard but it's not impossible by God's grace. He gives us this opportunity to live out what his love looked like, both wives with their husbands and husbands in headship. And maybe some of you are like, I don't like that idea. I hate it. I, I, I understand. But headship is not something that we should tout around and be like, hey, I get to make the calls. That's not what it's like. It resembles Jesus. C.S. Lewis described headship this way in The Four Loves. The headship then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, in her own mere image, least lovable, for the church has no beauty, but what the bridegroom gives her, and he does not find, but makes her lovely. As Christ sees in the flawed, proud, fanatical, or lukewarm church on earth, that bride who will one day be without spot or wrinkle and labors to produce the latter. So the husband whose headship is Christ-like. Headship is not domineering. It's the opportunity to serve so that the future potential of our bride is fully realized. That's what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis went on to say, you shouldn't pursue that kind of martyrdom, okay? Don't like try to, that's not what you should pursue. But that is an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed. I'm wrapping up, okay? So how do we love like this? It's really hard. It's really difficult. But it's the only way that the gospel is going to be declared in our homes, in our marriage. The reason marriage is so painful, uh, Tim Keller says it like this. And I'm closing, I promise. The reason marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we could ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted by Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. This is the only kind of relationship that will really transform us. Love without truth, just sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Love without truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. But God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet radical, unconditional commitment to us. That's the beauty of what we get to live out in our gospel, in our in our marriages. The beauty of the gospel. And it's beautiful. So I want to leave you with this question: Is your heart soft? Because the reason that marriages, like, crumble and fail, Jesus described it this way. In the beginning, it wasn't like this. The reason it happened is because our hearts grow hard. That's what happens, okay? If you're kind of in this place where you're like, I need, like, a resurrection power in my marriage. We're about to sing, He Turns Graves into Gardens. You just receive this song, okay? We're going to sing that song. If you feel that, I want you to know, if you feel this crushing weight over the things that I've described, God has grace for you, okay? He is kind. He is long-suffering. And whatever day you find yourself in today, okay, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. That's his word for you. If you hear him speaking to you about the context of your marriage, don't harden your heart. Let's pray together. I've gone over. Jesus, thank you for this, your word. And I pray that it would find root in our hearts. And for those that came into the room already skeptical, and this message has made them a bit more skeptical about the Christian faith, I pray that your heart, your heart for us, your vision for flourishing would captivate us and that it would be beautiful. It wouldn't be some uh, ancient thing that feels out of date. Father, I pray that it would be compelling. The only way that that happens is by the power of your spirit. So I believe your spirit's working today and that as your word is proclaimed and the gospel is preached, that you use it to transform hearts. And I pray that that would be so today. I pray that this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.